With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. People always ask, what number do I need to retire? Which is almost an antiquated question because retirement's starting to become an antiquated word. But I understand it. What does financial freedom mean? And so let's just hypothetically say you need 10 million because you'll make 4% every year after taxes conservatively, so you can live a great life with 400,000 a year. So let's just make up that number. But the flip side is if you love what you're doing, and you don't have 10 million, but you're making 400,000 a year, it's as if virtually you have 10 million. It's as if your your virtual net worth is 10 million because you would be doing this anyway and you're making this income stream. And you discussed that quite a bit in the book with some fascinating stories. Yeah, you know, I had gone from being the pioneer as a boutique entrepreneur, hotel entrepreneur in my mid-20s to being the establishment by 52. And then within the first couple of weeks, I was like, oh, wow, I'm, I thought I was supposed to be the mentor here, Brian Chesky, the CEO's mentor. I'm the intern. I don't understand the language, this tech lingo. And frankly, I was twice the age of the average employee. So I decided, gosh, the only way I'm going to survive here is to be as much of a curious learner as I am the wise sage. And that's what a modern elder is. A modern elder is not like the traditional elder of the past who is regarded with reverence. The modern elder is all about relevance. And relevance is taking that timeless wisdom and applying it to modern day problems. But that means you have to actually be a lifelong learner. But I was very comfortable being the the person who asked the most questions in a room and quite often the most naive. Let's roll. Jay, Jay, put up a sign at like 10.50. Perfect. And let's get started. Um, But I just want to say... Not only did I really enjoy it, uh, you know, I just got it, so I just I just read it in the past couple of days. But I'm definitely like, as you suggest towards the end, I'm going to definitely read it again because yeah. I think it is a guidebook to the modern elder, and I never thought of it that way uh, as a modern elder. Well, you know, <laughs> when first, someone first called me the modern elder at Airbnb, I was like, really? <laughs> El- you know, elder and elderly sound a lot alike, and um, yeah. but there's a big difference, and we'll talk about that. I don't, yeah. don't want to, uh, but. You tell us when you're ready. The audio is already rolling. Okay. I'm just rolling the camera right now. Okay. So once again, I am so happy to have my friend Chip Conley on the podcast. Chip was, when we first met, uh, Chip was the head of hospitality at Airbnb. Uh, welcome to the show again, Chip. It's great to be here, James. You, you've changed your digs. It's no longer your living room. It's a, yeah. you know, a real studio. Well, that was a living room at an Airbnb. <laughs> Even better. And upstairs from where I was. Right. So we were in the same building. So so my Airbnb host at that time called me and said, hey, the head of hospitality for Airbnb is at the Airbnb right below you and wants <laughs> to hang out. And so you came upstairs. You we had a, a bottle, bottle of wine. wine. That's right. Yeah, a bottle you were of wine. so hospitable. I was going to bring a bottle of wine to this, <laughs> but then I figured, oh, you wouldn't want to lug a bottle of wine around all day. It's 10 a.m. in the morning now. I think I'll pass on that. Yeah. But uh, we did a podcast then, and and then you invited me to speak at the Airbnb Open, which was so much fun. Um, uh, I just had a great time. And now you've, you've changed your role at Airbnb. You're a strategic advisor. You wrote this great new book that just came out. Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. Uh, you know, I have so many questions and so many stories and things I want to talk to you about, but define modern elder. Yeah, so uh, I joined Airbnb at age 52. I'd spent 26 years before that being a boutique hotel entrepreneur. 
um, the three young founders in early 2013 approached me and said, we're a, a fast-growing tech startup, but no one in the world sees us as a hospitality company. We want to democratize hospitality. Will you join us? And I was like, okay, democratize hospitality sounds pretty cool, but what's Airbnb? <laughs> because frankly, I didn't have an Uber or Lyft app for my phone at that time. I'd never heard of the sharing economy. This is almost six years ago. And I was oh, really? People stay in each other's homes? What an interesting but sort of weird idea. And, and I was like, the, I had gone from being the pioneer as a boutique entrepreneur, hotel entrepreneur in my mid-20s to being the establishment by 52. So I said yes. And then within the first couple of weeks, I was like, oh, wow. I'm, I thought I was supposed to be the mentor here, Brian Chesky, the CEO's mentor. I'm the intern. I don't, I don't understand the language that was being talked in the, in the hallways or in the conference rooms, this tech lingo that I hadn't grown up with. And frankly, there was a, I was twice the age of the average employee. So I decided, gosh, the only way I'm going to survive here is to be as much of a curious learner as I am the wise sage. And, um, and that's what a modern elder is. A modern elder is not like the traditional elder of the past who is regarded with reverence. The modern elder is all about relevance, and relevance you know, is taking that timeless wisdom and applying it to modern day problems. But that means you have to actually be a, a lifelong learner. Well, well, you know, first off, in your original boutique hotel chain, uh, San, every time I went to San Francisco for the past two decades, San Francisco is known for its boutique hotels. I'm sure I've stayed in like yes. several of your hotels because there was always something special about the boutiqueness, the the, the, yep. the modernity of uh, certain hotels in San Francisco that doesn't happen in any other city. So, congratulations on that. And and Brian Chesky obviously made the right choice just on the surface because you knew hospitality, and that's what Airbnb kind of needed to make that transition. How much do you feel when you first got there? Did you feel like I, I don't necessarily agree with you that you didn't have any digital intelligence. Like everybody just naturally had it, but I do agree that probably you needed to show them you were listening rather than just lording over them with your ideas. There's a great old saying: "Knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens." And um, I was giving a talk uh, in Utah recently with the Summit Series folks, and there, there's a I was supposed to be giving a talk on wisdom to mostly people who are twenty, twenty five years younger than me. Um, I'm fifty eight as of October. Um, what the hell? You're 58? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, as I was going in to give my talk, there's a guy with an owl in front. Like, okay, you know, I've never met an owl, and he's got the owl on his arm. And so I got put the owl on my arm, and I said, so why is the owl the wisest animal or bird in the forest? And he says, because it has the most acute listening skills. It can hear everything. And so that really is an interesting um, analogy to the elder, the wise elder. The wise elder, the modern elder, is somebody who's a great listener. And they're not just listening to the story, they're listening for the story. One of the things that... Uh, you mentioned it in the book, and I thought that was an interesting distinction because there's always... Yeah. A good story has layers, and there's a story within the story. The, I think the wiser you are, the more you're able to see what's beyond the surface. And uh, what happened with me at Airbnb is I was talking with all these young people and they'd be telling me their story about why they and their manager aren't getting along or this or that. And what I was really listening for is what's beneath the surface, the, maybe the theme or the thread that's, un that's sort of unified here. And then not with the intent of sort of giving them a gotcha, um, but more just sort of actually asking questions. You know, I think the elder of the past was all about the answers. But damn, Google has all the answers today. So I don't even—I don't need to have all the answers. I though could use if I could be the one who gives the catalytic questions that are that feel really nuanced and perfect for the person I'm giving it to. Then I think I have served my role as a modern elder. Well, what was an example early on where you finally um, felt like, oh, okay, my role as an elder is this is what's happening to me. Like I'm, I'm actually providing some value and not like in a macro way, like where you're helping all of Airbnb, but just yeah, in an yeah. in, interpersonal way where you're helping an employee there. Well, or actually it happened, the, the thing that popped in my mind first when you said that was I was in a meeting and I, you know, lots of people in meetings try to show how smart they are and everybody's, especially in a young company, they're sort of like, who's the smartest in the room? And I realized I... Um, had a bunch of questions, but they weren't the normal questions, like what and how questions, which are sort of optimization questions. They're more like why and what if questions, mm -hmm. which are the kind of questions that a four-year-old asks. 
but I, th- this was specific to our Airbnb peer-to-peer review system. And our peer-to-peer re- review system at Airbnb is much, uh, much better than, say, the hotel you know, online surveys that nobody fills out. So we have a better system. But five and a half years ago when I joined, there were some flaws in it. So I asked a bunch of why and what if questions that were, you know, in the Airbnb world, some of them were blasphemous. Like, well, why do we have hosts review guests? Hotels don't do that. So I wanted to understand that. But some of the questions I asked, and ultimately on that one, I was like, yeah, I think it's a good idea. But some of the questions I asked, like, well, why is it that we don't think there's retribution happening? And like, if if a guest has a bad experience with a host, have you seen the data? It shows that on the 30th day, which is the last day that people could actually give a review, there's this huge spike up in reviews on the last day, and they're 50% negative, whereas normally they're like 80% positive or 90% positive. So people are waiting till the very last moment to actually put their review up because they're worried about retribution. We need to change the system. And so we ba- basically, I said, let's make remake the peer-to-peer review system, which and was at first thinking like, wow, that's something we're not going to touch. It's been, it's, it's so, it, the community is sort of likes it the way it is. But we made two or three major and fundamental changes to it and made it better. What, what did you change? Because uh, again, just as, as background, I lived for about, Three or four years only in Airbnbs, yeah. so I was I became very familiar with the Airbnb system. Yeah, so 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 a couple examples. One example on the one as a riffing of just what I said was instead of having thirty days to review, but if you on the seventh day you put it up, it immediately posts. Um, we made it such that you had fourteen days to review, and yours didn't post until the other person put put theirs up, or fourteen days went by. So in essence, we didn't we took away the retribution problem because. If the, if you're the guest reviewing a host and it's not a good review, you're actually giving that review not so that the host can see it and then re- have them write a bad review about you as well. So that was one thing. We also created private feedback. The ability for a host to give guest or a guest to give host feedback that Airbnb doesn't see. And we also gave an opportunity for the guest and the host to give private feedback to Airbnb about the host or guest um, that that didn't exist before. And then we just started actually aggregating information better. So it helped us to do a better job of determining search ranking based upon the reviews. You know, um, I don't know how much of this was your, like just your presence at Airbnb might have helped their overall culture of hospitality. You know, you, you being there and representing so. hospitality probably sent the message to all the employees, hey, this is going to be a, an internal focus. And and I remember um, this was probably 2015. I, Airbnb was very, you know, I I would I would I, there was one time I couldn't find an Airbnb, and my old Airbnb was up, and I had to move, and I had no place to go. And I remember the employees were were very concerned with finding me an Airbnb. They would call hosts yeah. and then one employee his shift was over so the next employee took over and they found me a place to stay. Like it was yeah. I could rely on them for to to live, to to find a place to live. And then the other thing that happened was the host, I was a a a guest, a, you know, I was never a host. I was always a guest. And but the host and the guest were in this kind of weird uh, symbiosis where we were afraid of Airbnb equally. <laughs> um, so if I had a problem or the host had a problem, we'd work really hard Great. to figure it out. And then we'd bring in the Airbnb yeah. person to figure to, to make the whatever adjustments they need to make, like yeah. money transfer back and forth. But we were all so afraid. Like yeah. I always made sure I'd go with hosts who this was their business yeah. because they didn't want their reputation yeah, yeah. tarnished. And I, and as someone who was a perpetual guest, I didn't want my reputation tarnished. Right. So we'd worked really hard to, to figure it out. Well, lots of the programs that Airbnb has, I mean, you know, I, I've been there for five and a half years, the last year and a half in a consulting role, but a lot of the programs we put in place uh, were things that we, just brainchilds that, you know, I had along the way, along with my team. And then some of them are things we inherited that just needed a boost. There was a program called the Superhost Program that existed when I arrived, but there were only 200 of them in the world, and they hadn't add any, added any for about a year and a half, and they were thinking about getting rid of the program. So there are now 700,000 Superhosts around the world, and we used it as a metric for success and quality and how you could have a better assurance that that particular listing and that host was actually good at what they did. So, uh, and it also became something that that helped incentivize the host community to step it up a little bit. So, long story short, is business is often about psychology, and it's all about understanding people. 
And I learned along the way at Airbnb that to be a modern elder meant to uh, intern publicly and mentor privately. So, um, whether yeah, it was, and you discussed that quite a bit in the book with some fascinating stories. Yeah, you know whether it was Brian who didn't need me interrupting him in the middle middle of a meeting as the CEO, uh, having me say, you know, here's how that you should run your meeting. No, I mean if I was going to give Brian feedback about a meeting. I would give that privately, but I would also give that privately to someone who is a direct report of mine or somebody, you know, uh, who asked for me to be their mentor. I, I'd make sure that the the feedback was private. But I was very comfortable being the the person who asked the most questions <laughs> in a room and quite often the most naive. And so, yeah, maybe I didn't know a lot about digital, but I certainly knew a lot about common sense and business, and and that well, was the piece that I think was very helpful. What was some of the um, kind of um, to the side uh, business meeting advice you would give to Brian? Like, wh wh when would you notice something in a meeting where you say, you know, maybe you could have done it this way? Well, I mean, the, the most obvious examples were when people who are generally introverted but have great things to say aren't encouraged to actually say something. So you end up in meetings often with certain people dominating the meeting who are usually extroverts, usually sort of bigger thinkers who just sort of end up sort of talking for long periods of time. So one of the classic things to do was to say, how are you going to either in, in a one-on-one -on -one with that person who's quiet to encourage them to talk more, or how do you actually in, just sort of say, have an idea that, and pose an idea to the group and then actually call on that person first so they have an opportunity to talk. Um, but in some cases, it was actually someone who's brilliant but needs time to process. So if it's someone who's brilliant needs time to process, actually tell them what you're going to go over in the meeting four or five days before the meeting so they've had time to process it. By the time of the meeting, they can actually articulate because we all think differently. And so there's some people who actually need time to synthesize their thinking before they actually express it. That's such a great idea. I haven't really thought of that. So let's say, um, let's say I have a meeting a week from now scheduled, and it's with a bunch of younger people, just hypothetically, or anybody yep, really. Yep. And I could almost—it's almost like not quite giving them assignments four or five days before, but almost asking kind of a gentler way to do it is asking for advice. Like, hey, I need help with this. Maybe this is, think about it and we could discuss it in the meeting coming up. That's right. At least getting people mentally prepared for it. Some people won't need that at all because they're just sort of spontaneous. Others actually appreciate it. And usually the more introverted you are, the more likely it is you need that processing time. Um, another thing I did, for, did with Brian is... Um, and one particular time as we were going into the holiday season, everybody had wor been working their rear ends off and it, the families of these senior leaders hadn't seen them much. And so I said, it's, you got Thanksgiving coming up. It's a great opportunity to send flowers to the spouses of senior leaders in the company, flowers or a bottle of wine or whatever, and just say thank you to the spouse and the family, um, not just to you know your executive, because those are the people who are basically suffering through the fact that you know you've got us working, you know, sixteen hours a day right now. It's so funny because this is related to what you just said is related to a podcast I had yesterday and a podcast I have later this afternoon. Wow! And uh, in the podcast yesterday with uh, Jocko Willink, um, uh, he he mentioned uh, there's opinions and facts. The spouse is a fact, <laughs> so you have to work with. The spouse and make sure everybody's happy in the family unit. Yeah, and then um, later, um, talking with Mike Ovitz, who of course is yeah. the, the famous uh, CAA agent, uh, and you would see throughout his autobiography if he was trying to win over Paul Newman. Paul Newman was kind of a, this abstract entity that he was trying to win over, but Joanne Woodward, Paul Newman's you know longstanding wife. That was who Mike Owens would really try to win over to to get oh, yeah. Paul as a client. I mean, we don't we forget about the fact that there's a persuasion factor with a spouse or with a partner, and every every night that person's going home, and usually, you know, there's a there's a kvet, we tend to kvetch a lot, you know, when we go home from work, and and so the person at home has maybe a little bit of a distorted perspective. Number one is the person's coming home and complaining sometimes, and number two is the you know the the person who works for you is working really long hours, so the people at home aren't seeing much of them. So it's right. not surprising that sometimes when uh, a senior leader is thinking about leaving, the spouse is saying, yes, please leave. So I think that was you know just a thing I wanted to make sure Brian understood, is yeah, that, that actually building, that those are a really, that's part of the constituency you need to be playing to. That's a really good point, because 
if someone's unhappy, the spouse who doesn't have of the full range of options in front of them to suggest is just going to say, well, just quit and find another job. I'll, I'm supportive of that. And if the spouse is working, like you say, too many hours, or if the, if the leader is working too many hours, the spouse is going to say, hey, I want more time. Like, I'm unhappy. Yeah. So you have to figure out ways to be unhappy. It reminds me, though, when, when I was running my first company, I was in my late 20s and, and 30, and my goal... I didn't think about spouses, uh, maybe because I didn't have one at the time, but my goal was um, I wanted my employees to be able at night to call their parents and say, I just had the best day at work. Yes. So that was always my goal. This is why I called my boutique hotel company Joie de Vivre. Very few companies in the world actually have a mission statement that's also the name of the company. But Joie de Vivre in, in French means joy of life. And so our uh, our mission was to create opportunities to celebrate the joy of life, first for our employees, second for our customers. And that was the premise. And so I think the more you, I mean, one of the things that Brian knew way before I joined and he was just so brilliant at, but but I think I helped a little bit, was the culture. How do you create a culture that is, is um, something that people actually are magnetized to, toward? And culture is so important, yeah. particularly today, you know, we have 3.2% unemployment. So people could know they can just leave a job and find something better. So culture has to be is more important than maybe ever before in the past forty years. Well, I used to say culture eats strategy uh, for lunch, mm -hmm. and and it's the idea there is cultures can be a strategic differentiator for a company, um, and not all you know. There's not all good or bad cultures. I mean, it depends upon the industry, the, the geography, the nature of who your who your employees are. So I want to ask you about you know your reinvention and you know the different things you've gone through, including most recently. But um, tell me a little, like, what does it mean a personal board of directors? that You, you mentioned, um, I think it was Sally Krawcheck's uh, uh, recommendation, who herself has kind of reinvented herself very successfully and is, is, has had so much admirable success in, in industry. But what, what does it mean and how, does, how can I create it? Yeah, I think you having your own personal board of advisors or directors really is just saying if you could actually have a collection of people who just knew that you counted on them as somebody for sage and direct candid advice, um, you would actually, number one, feel a little bit more solid that you have people in, in, in your camp. Number two is you don't feel guilty when you do out, go out and ask them. And number three, on certain occasions, you actually might bring them together on a conference call or video call and say, you know, I want to pose an idea or thought to you as a group. You all don't even know each other, but I'd love to actually have the synthesis of all your great ideas with me in a 90-minute phone call. This is I love this idea because it's almost a formal way of the, of the um, kind of personal development saying uh, you're the average of the five people around you. And which is such an, it's a cliche, but it's so important and it's so correct. And you only realize that after years of not having the right five people around you. <laughs> but like, it's like a formal way of doing it. Like, again, how would, how would I go about, like, I feel like I have that in my life, but how many people make up a personal board of directors? Like, are they your best friends? Are yeah. they your just advisors? Well, or? I would start by saying, don't assume that you're ultimately going to have them all together. So they, they don't have to necessarily um, feel, you, you don't have to feel like they all could get along well at a cocktail party. I would say make sure that you have diversity in there. And I'm not just talking about gender or uh, racial or age or you know sexual orientation. I mean, just um, cognitive diversity. You want somebody on that in that group who is a big thinker, um, not process oriented. And then you need somebody else who's going to be somewhat sort of like the, you know, the COO type who is very process minded. And probably can actually look at something and say, well, here's the steps you'd need to take. Um, having those two people at, at minimum is helpful. Having somebody who is not from the business world or from your career world at all. Like I love mm. having an artist or a writer mm. as a close friend. I have many of them. Um, partly because they are able to see symbols and metaphors of my life better than my more sort of logically thinking business friends. And sometimes it's the metaphors in your life that are the most powerful, and they're the ones that actually help you to see, wow. You know, I have a friend, Vanda, and Vanda is a poetry fairy, which means that she basically goes to parties and she just starts spouting poetry. And But you know, that sounds sort of weird and fun, and yet as a, as a close friend and sort of on my board of advisors, her ability to just 
a moment in a moment's notice, understand what I'm going through, and then just through memory, remember a poet, a poem from start to finish, and read it to me just when I needed to hear it. That's a modern elder. That is when someone has just given you a gift. And um, so sometimes I need the literal help. Sometimes I need more the artistic figurative help. Um, and then there's some some people who are there who are just there only for your own purpose of of just making sure that that you know someone loves you. And it's that's the person who's just going to support you in whatever you're going to do. But hopefully, if they're giving some tough love, they're going to actually give you their point of view, um, not for necessarily what's best for your career, but maybe what's best for you. Right, and that I I you know I was thinking about your your role or your your definition of yourself as a modern elder at Airbnb, and I was thinking if I was in that position, sometimes you're going to have to legitimately say to maybe an employee at Airbnb, hey, this might not be the best path for you at oh, Air- for sure. being an employee here or 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 do, being a technologist or whatever it is. Listen, candor, you, you know, not, if, I hate when someone's just sort of telling me what they think I want to hear. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate when somebody's direct with me and respectful, you know, that, that nice balance of direct and respectful allows me to sometimes hear it when, you know, it, if it was just direct alone. I might shut down. So uh, yeah, I had some really tough conversations. I had one woman I actually talk about in the book, Jessica. Um, she was having a terrible relationship with her boss. She was going to leave the company. And all of a sudden, Brian said, hey, we've got to do this first time Airbnb open. And it was like four or five months before we were going to do the first one. We we're going to have 1,500 people from 40, 40 countries. And I had four to five months to plan and organize this event while I had a full-time job at Airbnb. And so I needed someone. Jessica was basically on... Uh, basic on the path of leaving. And I just told her, you know, this is going to be your last chance to sort of make a mark here. And um, you're a creative, you're a creative spark. You love our host community. Let's actually take you off the ground. She was like a little wounded bird who had a wing, a wing that was broken. And so I just gave her the opportunity to be sort of my right-hand person on this. And she did a hell of a job. And that led to the Airbnb open going to a second year in Paris. And then you were at the third year with 20,000 people in LA. So from 1,500 to 20,000 people, Jessica now, having left, she started her own company called The Passion Project, and then now she's becoming a psychotherapist. So I have, in essence, helped her move from Stanford Business School grad to Airbnb exec to all of a sudden, you know, her path to becoming a psychotherapist, which is what feels natural. And we all have three relationships with our jobs or with our work. It's either a job, a career, or a calling. My role in life is to help people find their calling. You know, um, I thought about this in the context of money. So this is a, I'm going to make a a weird analogy to what you just said. People always ask, what number do I need to retire? Which is almost an antiquated question because retirement's starting to become an antiquated word. Um, You know, you kind of have to keep active your, your whole life. Um, but I understand it. What does financial freedom mean? And so let's just hypothetically say you need 10 million because you'll make 4% every year after taxes conservatively. So you can live a nice life with a great life with 400,000 a year. So let's just make up that number. But the flip side is if you love what you're doing and you don't have 10 million, but you're making 400,000 a year, it's as if virtually you have 10 million. Yeah. It's as if your, your virtual net worth is 10 million because you would be doing this anyway, and you're making this income stream of four hundred thousand a year, which is like if you were a public company, you'd be worth ten million. Yes. So, so you can look at it both ways, and and the more you love what you do, the higher your virtual net worth, giving you f- the freedom you want. Yeah. And so, it, in re- in some sense, helping somebody find their calling brings them closer to financial freedom, even if their income doesn't change. Yeah, you know, the thing it does, it puts them in the the flow zone such that they can, you know, tap into that river that uh, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi wrote about in Flow, his book, famous book. Uh, and you're the first person I've ever heard to say his name right. <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's, he calls himself Mike. You had to practice that. Here's, no, here's, well, he and his wife invited me to their Montana cabin for three or four days a few years ago when I was writing another book called Emotional Equations, and I, I was writing a chapter on Flow, and he said, "Come on up, we'll spend three or four days together." And we'll just muse. We'll just go for hikes. And muse. It was amazing. So, Oh, my God. I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so long story short is getting into that flow state um, is 
frankly, almost hypnotic. And you do it. You do it when you're on stage. You do it when you're doing a podcast. You get into that place where all of a sudden it feels like the the heavens and, and the cosmic consciousness is just flowing through you. And you say things that are not necessarily planned, but it just came through you. And that, well, it's not saying, it's also doing things. There's an element of when you're lined up with that. And I, I, I you know, that sounds awfully new age and very Californian. No, but also, but the science of flow oh, is, is acknowledged now. It's huge. And, it, and the thing that a lot of people don't know about this is that actually to get into the right flow zone, you have to actually have a, com- a combination of being at ease, but also being a little stressed. So flow does not happen when you're actually just sort of mailing it in, doing the thing you know really well. Flow happens actually when you're sort of pushing yourself at that sort of level of stress zone so that you're in between stress and boredom. Um, And so a lot of people don't know that. And they they think, okay, well, flow zone is just like doing what's sort of like natural. No, what's natural alone is going to actually get you to a place where you you will not push yourself. Yeah, it, it's it's so interesting because I can think of of two examples. Like a, a a classic example would be computer programming. Many computer programmers who are great, and there's a big difference between great and good computer programmers. But a great computer programmer will slip into flow, not because they're so good at computer programming, but because there's a problem that they can't quite solve yet. So nine hours later, they look up from their screen, and you know they have the best code in the world, and they've solved it. But it's but they were. They're like, what? Nine hours just happened, you know. And a similar thing for like, uh, like a great chess player, say. But where I've experienced it recently is like you, like I did a, an hour of stand-up comedy last week um, at 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 this very club that we're we're sitting in, and suddenly, it's like you're right. I had already had a lot of experience and been practicing and preparing so much, but then. There's still that stress, like, oh my gosh, an hour. What if I forget things? What if I run out of material? And just in that combination of, I've worked so hard and I know this, but that stress of like, there's an audience paying to see me, things just come out, like the right things at the right moment if you're in that state of flow. And it it really does happen. And it's, it's a huge dopamine or oxy- yeah. something happens to the brain. It's like a wonderful feeling. It, it is. And um, it, it's, you know, there's lots of examples. People go running and they have an endorphin high. There's, mm. there's lots of physical effects that can happen in our life that sort of tell you you're on the right path. And, um, you know, I think getting clear internally you're on the right path is probably one of the most important things for us to figure out in life. Uh, weirdly enough, we don't do a whole lot in, in people's upbringing to help people Zero. get there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so yeah. we just feed them facts, which they're going to forget. That's right. And sort of says, you know, here's these standardized tests you have to do well on. And um, long story short is I I love people. And so my experience at Airbnb in the land of the young, in the land of, you know, the algorithms, was it was algorithm and people wisdom. And so it was my people wisdom matched with their algorithm that I think allowed the company to go from you know uh, t- you know relatively small um, startup to what today what is arguably the most successful hospitality brand in the world. Absolutely. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb. 
while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm thirty five. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So I have I have one quick question, then I want to get to your yeah. personal reinventions and, and how you've yes. found your path and so on. Um you know, which is an odd thing to say because you're still finding your path, and you're like you say, you're 58 years old. But uh, oh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one joke though. Yes, yes. So because I recently turned 50, and I thought to myself, um, I don't know, my brain still feels like 
as young as when I'm 15. Like, I don't feel like I'm 50. And then I realized, you know what? That's total bullshit. <laughs> like, when I was 15, here's the big difference. When I was 15, I would sneak out of home to go to parties. And now that I'm 50, I sneak out of parties to go home. <laughs> and it's really true. That's kind of like a big difference. And there's a lot of layers underneath that, but there's a huge difference between 50. Uh, 50 is the new 50. I no longer allow people to say, oh, you don't seem 50. Yeah. I'm 50 yeah. and proud. But um, when you you were working with, you know, Brian Chesky, Joe Gebbia, the, you know, the founders mm -hmm. of, of Airbnb, and between 2013 and now, They've personally seen their own fortunes rise. I mean, they're yeah. they're multi-billionaires. When you started working for them, they knew that they that there was success coming, but it hadn't yet happened. How did you see yourself as an elder guiding them? You know, people always say money doesn't necessarily make you a better person. It magnifies what's already inside you, mm. which needs a lot of guidance as you get there. How did you see yourself also as as a, an elder, a mentor? guiding them as they dealt with the success so they can keep on being the leaders that they are. Well, so I, I think you spend the first half of your life accumulating and we spend the second half of our life editing. And so one of the things that I think str uh, is, is striking about an elder is their ability to have precision about what's important mm. and to be able to sort of, it's not, it's not a mathematical or an arithmetic equation, it's a division equation, meaning knowledge, you can, knowledge can be plus, 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 Wisdom is a division equation, so you get down to what's the essence and what's most important. So I think one of the things I really maybe maybe explain that a little bit. Yeah. So it means um, being wise is be able to see a lot of things and then be able to see the theme or the thread or the thing that actually is most important, and to help actually put the blinders on when you need to do that. Let, let me use an example to explain. So when I joined Airbnb, we had 30 strategic initiatives in 2013. I was like, who can ever remember all of that? <clears throat> so I asked Brian, you know, are we are you wedded to these? And he says, no. I said, okay, so let's have four next year. Let's have only four. And let's go to New York from San Francisco. We'll take our dozen senior leaders. I'll lead a four-day retreat, um, three or four-day retreat there to actually figure out what our strategic initiatives are for the year. And let's have all 12 people on the, on the team bring their favorites and we ended up having 23 of them. And let's then make a conscious decision that we're going to actually edit it down to just the ones that are most important. So I think one of the things that I was able to do, um, and again, let's start by saying that the, the three founders are brilliant and have growth mindset, you know, so they're always interested in learning. But which is key, and but and growth mindset refers to uh, Carol Dweck. Yeah. Carol Dweck's mindset, exactly. And um, excellent book, a book I gave to Brian, and and Brian sort of looked at that and say, yeah, this is the way we want to be as a company. But the problem for for a company that's growing that quickly, and also in the sharing economy, is we were getting business proposals to have us go into sharing of all kinds of things because the sharing economy has gone in all kinds of different directions, and my. You know, my counsel to Brian and Brian was on the same page was, let's just stay in travel. Let, let there's an opportunity for us to grow into a super brand of travel, and like just let's focus on that. And I think so. To answer your question, part of the idea of helping them for the company was to actually help them to make sure let's edit what we do so that we're focused on what what we can do well. <clears throat> that means, frankly, we are a distributor, not a manufacturer. Um, and just, if you think about it, just take a step back. It's like Airbnb is a is a, an incredibly popular website that distributes something. We don't actually go out and build things. Now we've been asked to do everything from building hotels to designing all kinds of interesting things. And because Joe and and Brian are both designers from Rhode Island School of Design, they like the idea of that. But if we can come back to what we do well. We're a distribution company and we're a brand that people like because it stands for something, which is to belong anywhere. So long story short is I think the idea of an, an, an elder or modern elder is that they are able to help you see the essence of what's important. And then based upon that, make decisions using that editing function. I mean, Steve Jobs was famous for saying, you know, one of his best qualities was the ability to say no. And that's a really important quality for young people who have lots of options. And so so saying no, but I also feel like, you know, a lot of people in that accumulation stage, they're focused on growth, 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 
you know, increasing knowledge to increase growth, to yeah. wipe out competitors, to accumulate. I'm not saying this in a bad way. That's just a, a natural progression, particularly for, for people who are as successful as the founders of Airbnb. At some point, there, I feel like an elder comes in or you learn from experience, what are your core values beyond accumulation? And I feel, uh, correct me if oh, I'm wrong. No doubt. You know, I mean, we were a disruptor. so let's, And so we were lumped in with, um, with Uber a lot. And so there were lots of opportunities for us to do strategic partnerships with Uber, which we didn't do. And um, there are lots of opportunities for us to be compared with Uber. And we do our best, we did our best not to sort of say anything good or bad about Uber. But what we really wanted to make sure that we could have have the founders understand is if we're gonna be a disruptor in the hospitality business, we better be hospitable. And so what that meant was let's be a friendly disruptor. Let's actually have a brand that actually that stands for something. Let's actually be more proactive about how we give back and we do social good out there. Let's do things. Let's. In, one of the things I said to Brian is, let's invite the CEOs of Hilton and Marriott and Starwood here with their senior executives, and let's do a day and a half for each one of them, each of those companies, um, teaching them about data science and millennial travel habits and um, what is home sharing. And we did that. You, you mentioned that in the book, and I was wondering. It was crazy. They idea. hate you. <laughs> no, they, well, you know what? Here's the part that was interesting. It's like you know, you'll, we're going to be the villain, so we're the disruptor. But it's harder for them to hate us if we've actually been generous in in our process. Mm. And we haven't. You know, Arnie Sorensen, CEO of Marriott, is on the back of the cover of that book, endorsing the book. Now, that's sort of surprising that Marriott, the Marriott CEO, is endorsing a book about Airbnb. Um, but yes, have we over time, there's a great yeah, Gandhi quote that's in the book that was, the, I said it the first day I started on the job, Gandhi supposedly said about the British back in the 1930s, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, and then you win. And that is the path, um, of the cycle for all of these disrupt people we were disrupting, landlords, hoteliers. Um, corporate travel managers, convention m meeting planners, destination marketing organizations that market uh, cities. In each of those cases, there's initially like, oh, I've never even heard of them, or let's just ignore them. And then there's the ridicule, and then the fight, and then the win. The fight we've had with the hotel industry, um, because we have absolutely become more of a competitor, although I don't think we're in a death match because I think the, the the value proposition of hotels and home sharing is moderately different. Our average I, length. Of I do agree with that. I've I've realized yeah. that our average length of stay. You were a guest. Our average length of stay is more than twice as long as a hotel, mm -hmm. and that's because we work well for a longer stay, not as well for a shorter stay. And hotels are exactly the opposite. They work well for the efficiency of a short stay, not so well if you're going to spend three weeks or four weeks in a hotel room, a little box of a room. So. Um, long story short is I think the idea of reaching out to those that we are going to disrupt in a proactive way and friendly way before they get to the point of actually ridiculing and fighting us is not a bad idea. And, and it's it's interesting to point out that that's outside the comfort zone of everybody involved. And I think that's always important <laughs> to do. Yeah. I think the fact that it was contrarian is why I liked it so much. Mm -hmm. I like being a rebel, but, I, but at the end of the day, it worked. It absolutely worked. In that, it actually, I think, meant that we had a, a line of communication with these companies, with these hotel companies. And some of those hotel companies, while we've never announced it, and I can't talk about the specifics of it, we came so, so close to some partnerships with those huge hotel brands that would have been off the charts. But they, they at the end of the day, they got scared. They, not us, Airbnb, the hotel brands did. In part because they also have an agenda where they're, they have to officially lobby against you. And so it's hard for them to do deals with you while they're lobbying legislation well, state by state. They are franchisee, franchisors. So they actually have owners of hotels. They don't own many of their own hotels. Right. So they have owners of hotels who've basically paid them a lot of money. Um, and they don't necessarily want, the owner of the hotel doesn't necessarily want uh, them you know, collaborating with us. But long, the, the, I think the, the whole point of that is just to say, business can be cutthroat. And, you know, but when you're a disruptor, you actually have almost like the noblesse oblige of actually figuring out how do you take some of the sting out of it. And in my perspective, from my perspective, it was actually, let's help educate them because the more they are educated, frankly, the more they may actually see that we are not as directly competitive as they thought we would be. 
so so but I want to know also like as you saw the rising fortunes of of Brian Joe uh, right. Nate's the other founder um how did you see them change you know were you able to give them personal advice like how do they you know they're probably I don't I, I'm just imagining they're buying huge houses and Ferraris no and they're planes doing none and, of that <laughs> they're like they're so they're so um you know modest in terms of their spending habits uh you know for how much they're worth so that I think and I think I had, I had some effect on that but I think a lot of other people did too I think where I could I was really helpful is helping them to see that um humility you know the thing that's unfortunate about Silicon Valley tech entrepreneurs is the hubris they needed to go actually raise that money mm. from the venture capitalists was fine in that venue, but then you don't operate your company, nor do you operate me media-wise out there in the world with that level of hubris. So I think part of the process of moving from young entrepreneur, which I was at age 26, starting a hotel company, to 52 at age 52, joining Airbnb, was going from hubris to humility. Because what happens along the way is you get your, your knee skinned a few times, you break your toe, you know, you you have you have some failures. How do you learn humility? Uh, I think you I think you learn humility because you actually realize you don't know it all. And I think the cha the challenge with young entrepreneurs who are very successful, straight out of the gates, is they believe it's exclusive because exclusively because of their Midas Golden Touch, and that's not true. There are a lot of maybe intelligence and a few other things, but that doesn't mean they're perfect. And the, the process of learning you're not perfect is one of the most important uh, and tangible skills that a young entrepreneur needs to learn. See, I wish when I had my initial success around the age of 30, I wish I had had uh, an modern elder order. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> telling me that because then I would have avoided 20 years of pain. But uh, I want to really ask you about your reinventions uh, I'm hoping we could push this a few minutes longer than we initially had planned. So, so you know, you, around the financial crisis, you had been running the this great set of boutique hotels for so long. This was your your domain. You knew it. Um, you experienced the suicides of six friends. Um, I guess because the combination of the financial crisis kind of up was an upheaval to many of their dreams and they didn't know how to reinvent themselves. Well, and also we you know we get attached to our identities. And if you are a successful entrepreneur, founder of a company, CEO of a company and it's going bankrupt, you're going emotionally bankrupt. And it's yeah. it doesn't have to be that way. And it's not that way for everybody, but for many people it is. And we get very attached to our name tag that we wear on our chest, <laughs> and, and combined the invisible with, one. Combined with the age, like, did you think, oh my gosh, at fifty-two, I'm selling these boutique hotels? Maybe not necessarily as high as I would like, but I, I can't take it anymore. Yeah. What at fifty-two? Did you feel like, oh my, Bill Clinton was president at forty-two? What am I going to do now <laughs> at fifty-two? <laughs> yeah, bro, I was Barack Obama was president, and he's younger than me. Um, I, you know, there's a great quote uh, from the intern from uh, Robert De Niro. He says, uh, musicians don't retire, they quit when there's no more music left inside of them. So at 52, I knew there was music inside of me. How'd you know? I knew it because I could you were feel depressed. it. I felt the energy. I felt the energy that I was curious still. I still had this curiosity about, I, I actually was, uh, I, frankly, I'll be honest, I was burned out on um, the hotel industry. I was bummed out because more and more institutional money was coming into real estate that sort of saw the hospitality business as a small H, big B, hospitality business. Whereas historically, the hospitality business had been a big H, small B, and it had been like people get into hospitality because they like to make people feel good. Um, but when you're, you're judged on your quarterly earnings by a, a public REIT that owns your hotel, um, you make short-term decisions. And sometimes those short-term decisions are not great for your employees or your customers, but they make more money. And I that was a frustrating thing. So I knew I still had a lot of curiosity and creativity toward hospitality, but I felt like the whole um, industry had changed to become so institutional. So it was interesting when Brian came to me on our first meeting and said, how would you like to democratize hospitality? And I said, wow. That sounds pretty good. It could use that. And uh, you know, now more recently, you you you've transitioned from you know a full time at Airbnb to being a strategic advisor. Like, what led to that? What's your you know? 
you're reinventing again at, at age 58. You're just as young as ever. Yeah. What's well? What what's uh, what's up with this? I, I seventy hours a week was not going to last forever. I loved it, and I still love the team, and I'm still very involved. But I wanted to get some time back in my life. It gave me the time to go down to Baja, California, a sewer like an hour north of Cabo San Lucas, which is where I live half the time, and to start writing the book and learning how to surf. At age fifty six, fifty seven, I started learning how to surf, which was great. Um, but more than anything, what I started to do is interview a lot of people who are in midlife. One of the things that's interesting about midlife is um, until, like in the year two, in the year 1900, longevity in the U.S. was 47. But by the year 2000, it was 77. So we added three decades of life to the average person in one century. By 1965, we had something called midlife crisis, which was coined by a psychologist but it's 53 years later from 1965, and we've done nothing to actually solve the crisis. And midlife is now not just 20 years long from 45 to 65. I would argue it's 40 years long. It's a marathon that goes from 35 to 75 because many people in many industries, especially in technology, start feeling a little bit irrelevant in their mid-30s. And a lot of people who are going to live to 100 are going to work till their mid-70s. So I'm sitting on the beach. Or I'm not sitting on the beach. I'm sitting on my deck above the beach writing my book, interviewing people, hearing a lot of anxiety and bewilderment from these people who are having a midlife crisis. And I said, why is it that in every other time of transition in our lives, whether it's puberty or it's going from adolescence to adulthood or it's getting married or it's having a baby or it's dying, we have rites of passage and rituals and celebrations, but we have nothing in midlife. We have nothing that brings people together and so that's what led me to say, I am a boutique hotelier at heart, but I also am sort of a personal growth person. And I've been on the board of the Esalen Institute at Big Sur for eight years. I've been a teacher there for 12 years. What if I created a the first midlife wisdom school in the world where people mine their mastery? We'll call it the Modern Elder Academy. I'll buy all of the land and homes nearby me. So I've got three acres on the beach and we'll try it on a beta basis for the first half of 2018 with 153 people going through either week-long or two-week-long programs. We did all of that. It was it flew like off the it was such a transcendent transformational experience for people that were open to the public now um, starting this fall in November we're sold out for the first uh, four workshops and it's an, a social enterprise so 50% of the people are on scholarship because I loved seeing the social worker walk down to the beach and go walking on the beach to have a heart to heart with the investment banker because they had something to teach each other. And potentially, like nowadays, they could even switch jobs. They might be able <laughs> so, to. Because, and I think people are like I go through this. Like, if you're above fifty, can you truly be great at something again? Like when you're twenty, you have the time and energy and passion to be great at something, whatever it is. But at fifty, there's there's doubt that creeps in. Like, am I going to really wait till seventy to be great at this thing I love? But what I realize is. You could bring in, you could borrow from the ten thousand hours you use getting great at something else yeah. to to get good. You don't need ten thousand hours anymore to get good at the next thing. Well, you may have actually, you may have built a skill or mined your the mining of your mastery allows you to see something you didn't know. Mm, your mining of your mastery. M Mike Riley, good friend of mine, went to college with him. His father was the the head, the president of the PGA, Professional Golfers Association. He Mike actually was a golfer at Stanford. Graduated at age 22, 23, went to work for 20 years with IMG, big sports management company. He became a, an agent for famous golfers. Um, he, in essence, were, was helping golfers in their 40s figure out what do you do once you're just going to stop golfing? You're going to license your name it's on clothes, or you're going to design golf courses, you're going to give lectures, write books, whatever. He got fired at age 43 because uh, the founders of his company, who was his mentor, died got sold to a private equity firm and Mike was one of the more you know higher uh, paid people there because he was you know managing the live the careers of many golfers it took him a decade to finally figure out what his mastery was he thought his mastery was golf and so if he, a year after you know being laid off and losing his job he went to sports management school to go become a masters in sports management and to teach but he realized he didn't love sports he he thought he just loved golf and yet the only place he could go do the job he had was at IMG and they weren't going to hire him back. He finally realized what he was great at was helping people in midlife, golfers, figure out their options of what's next for them. And he ended up becoming now the CEO of UC Berkeley Executive Education, 
And executive mm-hmm. education is basically people in their 30s and 40s and 50s remaking themselves. And so the mastery that you thought you had, in his case, he thought, I just know everything about golf or maybe everything about sports management. No, actually what he knew was midlife career counseling. Yeah, he he meta he, he meta skilled the micro skill he had mastered. So a lot of us don't see that. And so, and in midlife, what are the where do you go to learn that? So that that's the that's the point. And if we're gonna have to reinvent ourselves over and over again as the as the future gets more and more evolved, like change is happening faster and faster. So you're gonna actually have to evolve career-wise more quickly than we have in the past. You know, um, I, I wrote a book called Reinvent Yourself. Like reinvention has been such an important part of my life, which is why I mean that your book, again, I'll say the title's Wisdom at Work. The Making of Modern Elder. I've read it once. I've skimmed it a second time. But I'm definitely going to reread it fully a second time, as you suggest, and probably a third time because I think it's it's so valuable not just for for elders but for people beginning their path in life to 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 hear your experience and see how, that there's many possible directions and and possible ways that wisdom could embrace knowledge even at an early age. But one of the most valuable things I found in the book was the appendix, which which relies on you reading the whole book, but- No, appen- it doesn't. You can go straight to the appendix. <laughs> the appendix was great. Because I've never saw, seen an appendix like this. It's like, you basically just list your your favorite things and they're all so valuable. Like, you know, your favorite books, I've, I've read many of them. Some of them in a podcast guest already. Your favorite films, I love The Intern, Jiro Dreams of Sushi or Hero Dreams of Sushi is one of my my favorite documentaries. Uh, the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. But the first quote you have in one of your favorite quotes, this James Baldwin is probably my favorite author of all time. And he, I'll just say the beginning of his quote, um, any real change implies the breakup of the world as one has always known it. The loss of all that gave one identity, the end of safety. And at such a moment, unable to see and not daring to imagine what the future will now bring forth, one clings to what one knew or thought one knew, to what one possessed or dreamed that one possessed. Uh, and it just go and it goes on. And it's you know such a beautiful quote it that is. we all like. He was such an incredible artist, but he too left the country. He dealt with his sexuality, his race. He had to deal with so many changes and reinventions in his life, and and the wisdom that came with it. But anyway, uh, Chip, great book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. Uh, I'd love to help in, in your, your you know, wisdom Maybe you could be guest faculty. I mean, like, you know, for a place where people are reinventing themselves, you, are, you would be an amazing faculty member. Come I mean, on down. It's, it's we'll teach such, you to surf. I, I'll, I'll want to learn to surf. Okay. And it's been such an amazing ride for me whenever I've begun the next reinvention. For instance, now I don't live in Airbnbs. I live in an apartment. For the first time in my life, I had to move into an apartment at the age of 50. And <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it's always a ride. It doesn't stop. Yeah. You know, I think if, if there's one thing to be learned from all of this is to be continue to be curious because, you know, that curiosity is, a woman recently said to me, she said, I don't care the age of the person I'm interviewing. She's an executive recruiter. Because if they've got curiosity and engagement, the wrinkles fade away. And it's true. You know, your energy has a lot to do with how people read you. And so the fact that I can be as much of an intern as I am a mentor um, in an environment where I was twice the age of everybody, I think people sort of forgot that I was the age of their parents. You know, you should um, you should find internships for... Fifty-year-olds. We do. Like, like um, we had the we had the senior interns at Airbnb, seventy-three and sixty-three years old. They spent the last five years on the road on Airbnbs, and they did a ten-week internship as the senior interns at Airbnb a year ago. I, I bet that was an amazing experience. And we we interviewed recently um, Joe Moglia, who was um, the CEO of Ameritrade, really built it up to be uh, the multi-billion-dollar company it is. And he left CEO of, being CEO of Ameritrade. To be an intern coach, intern to the coach at the University of Nebraska. Oh, wow. And now he's the coach of the Coastal Carolinas. I don't know football at all, but wow, he wow. basically, like at the age of 70 or in his 60s, became an intern. I love that. And then another yeah. thing that happened recently is um, Jesse Itzler, who's written 
some excellent books, and he's married to Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. He said to me, oh, you should come down to Atlanta, be an intern for Sarah for a week. And uh, I well, think it's a great it's, idea. I mean, it's, it speaks very much to this reinventing. I mean, it, it, you can't reinvent yourself if, unless you actually stick your toe in the water. And one of the ways to, to understand whether you like it or not is to actually go intern. So, so uh, final thing, one, yes. one more minute. I, I always like to give you suggestions. Last time I gave you my 10 ideas for Airbnb, I have, I have two ideas yes. for Airbnb. One is, a lot of people look at Airbnb as entrepreneurs and question, okay, how can this be a road to entrepreneurship for me? So uh, I almost think Airbnb should create like an entrepreneur university mm. for people who want to mm -hmm. um, be part of the ecosystem. Yeah, like yep. you know, you, you know, Airbnb really is a a platform. Some people have extra extra inventory of empty rooms and some people want access to those empty rooms and Airbnb is the trusted yeah. platform in the middle but how can entrepreneurs make use of that yeah. trusted app platform by you know and, and understanding the laws and regulations yeah. around that yeah. and so on so that's idea number one idea number two in media media is such an important way now for for companies to brand themselves as opposed to sort of mass branding that reaches nobody any website that has a lot of traffic could a, could potentially be also a media empire or at least a media creator. Yeah, there could be shows. You know, hey, I'm going to look at three Airbnbs: luxury, middle, you know, mm -hmm. the the lowest saving mm -hmm. money, everything. Right. And every show I go or somebody goes around and stays in all three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's like a fun show. And you have the traffic. That show would get advertisers and, and millions of viewers a week, and, and you could even pay to it for it to be over the set-top box so you are people watch it. You are a psychic. All right. <laughs> <laughs> these things are, these, both of these things you're saying are in a different form uh, in the process of happening. So, yes. Uh, as, as we, as what happened last time. Yeah. No, it, it, Airbnb, the challenge with Airbnb is the editing process of like, what can we do and what can't we do? I understand, but, yeah. Air, but the second idea you just said is a, an idea that Brian really likes. A All lot, right. A lot. Because, you know, Uber is doing a Spike Lee series yeah. like on the app, which is, it's any any site now, you don't have to be a TV channel, any site can create content. Studio. have the audience. It's the Airbnb studio. So, again, Chip Conley, Wisdom at Work, The Making of Modern Elder, you've certainly been a modern elder to me, whether you know it or not, and it's been a pleasure these past few years getting to know you, and I'm so happy you came on the podcast again. Thank you so much. Thank you, and I can't wait to see you on stage. Excellent. Good. <laughs> All right. Great. Thank you yeah, guys. So much fun. Thank you.